0: Bless my words tonight, Father. Use them to your glory. Speak out as only you can, Father, in the mystery of using the preaching of a man to bring spiritual truth to ears, Father. Do that tonight through me. Use it to grow us, not just, Father, in number, but more importantly, in maturity. Open our ears to things we may not have heard before. Put them in our hearts in a way that we know they're true. And then, Father, use them to mold us into your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, let's finish the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. That's where we are tonight. Tonight our goal is to finish the kingdom parables. In these parables, what Christ has done for us is introduce a new and radical form of the kingdom, one that will exist until His return. And it's radical, not so much to us. We've become used to it. We call it church. But in the day that it was spoken... And certainly in comparison to history beforehand, it's a radical change. And so far we've seen six of a total of seven parables in this chapter that explain aspects or facets of the kingdom. In those earlier weeks, our study of those parables has produced this comprehensive overview of what the age that we're in now was going to be like, how the kingdom work of this age goes. And here's basically what we learned. We learned that it will be established by the spreading of God's Word, that it will be opposed at times by an enemy and the unbelievers that he has at his disposal. It will conclude only at the end of this age when Christ returns, and at that point, a great separation will happen between believers and unbelievers. And then last week, we learned ultimately what our service to Christ is about, what our priority in this age should be, is producing fruit, spiritual fruit, or good works in various forms. Last week, we looked at the fifth and the sixth parables remember the parable of treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price and i told you last week that together these two parables reveal the lord's incentive program to us a way that he wants to encourage believers to produce fruit in the kingdom period of time he taught us we are to be motivated by the prospect of earning eternal treasure in heaven that believers who serve christ and serve the kingdom program now are to understand that christ takes note of our personal self-sacrifices. He takes note of our perseverance, and He will reward us later as we serve Him. And I should add that those sacrifices include both a sacrifice of time in the service that you give to Him, whatever way you do that, but it also involves personal holiness. Your walk of sanctification, your movement away from sin and toward obedience is itself a good work that may result in reward. So the more service you offer to Christ now, The more godliness you exhibit now, the more eternal gain there may be in the future. That's what we learned last week. And so when you look at how the six parables work together, they move from general to specific. They move from explaining the world's response to the gospel to explaining a believer's response to Christ. And that's what we've done in the six parables so far. But there's still one to cover. And even after that, there's still an eighth parable in this chapter, though it's not one of the kingdom parables. So we're going to do those two tonight. First, let's study the last kingdom parable. It starts in verse 47. So chapter 13, verse 47. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, we notice in verse 47, this parable begins with the term, again. And that simply indicates it's connected. It's another of the seven. It's one of the kingdom parables. And this parable, as you see, is very similar to one we studied earlier. The second one on the wheat and the tares, it reads very similarly. In that earlier parable, remember the wheat represented believers. The tares represented unbelievers. They would exist together in the field of the world for a time until a harvest, a great separation that would happen at the end of the age. And as you remember that parable, it was very focused on, uh, at the end of it anyway, on on Jesus' return to judge at the end of the age. But in this case, the one we just studied, though it's talking about that same judgment moment, the emphasis between this parable and the second one is quite different. For example, in the earlier parable, the setting was farming. It was a setting of of being patient to wait for sowing, and the growing of things to finish, and then the harvest would come, right? Remember the landowner even told the servants in that parable, don't go out there and separate them just yet, just wait, wait until the harvest. So the emphasis in that earlier parable was on believers living side by side in this world for a time with the unbelievers of the world, And the church is supposed to be content and patient to exist that way for a period of time. That is to say, the kingdom program is not a time of judgment. It is a time of recruitment, that we are influencing the world for Christ. It's a time for, as I said, sowing and growing, if you want to use that phrase. And as a result, we will not be in a position to judge the results of the kingdom work of the church while we are in this period. We cannot rush to judgment. And I don't just mean about an individual. Certainly that's true as well. You know, until someone's dead, you can't know what might happen in their heart before that moment. And even after they're gone, you won't know until after Jesus comes back and we get to find out how everybody turned out, will we ever truly know, right? But it goes deeper than that. We're not supposed to evaluate the results of the church as a corporation or as an entity, or as an organization. Richard Halverson said it this way, and I really like the way he puts it. He says, we, speaking of the believers, he said, we have become bottom line conscious in the institutional church and in parachurch organizations. We cannot raise money to support our ministries unless we can quote statistics concerning how successful we are. We have to measure our results. We want to evaluate the harvest day after day so that we can use that information in our fundraising endeavors. And we forget that the real impact of the Church of Christ is in the world is immeasurable we will only know what it is at the harvest which is at the end of the age so the seventh parable takes that idea of judgment and it amplifies it in comparison to the second parable which was more about patience more about waiting knowing a judgment's coming yes but don't get too focused on that the seventh parable flips the script And you notice we're not talking about sowing and growing in a field anymore. We're talking about fish being harvested in a net. That is, this is now a parable that wants to put its focus squarely on that end moment. Dragnet fishing in the time of Christ, in the Galilee, for example, it would involve fishermen tying a very, very large net to posts on the shore. And the other side of the net they would tie to their boats. And they would start to sweep parallel to the shore in their boats pulling that net across the water until they had encompassed so many fish that it was full and then they would bring it to shore dragging it as it is up onto shore and that net would obviously get a huge quantity of fish and that fish that was in the the fish that's in that net would involve not just the ones they wanted but a lot of fish they didn't want because it, it took everything and so you'd have varieties in there that weren't really edible people didn't want them you couldn't sell them so as the fishermen would gather around their net on the shore they would sort it out the ones they wanted they put into containers as jesus said the ones they didn't want they had to throw out because one of the consequences of dragnet fishing is that you put so much fish in such a small area for such a period of time that they lost oxygen there wasn't enough oxygen left in the water and so the fish would die so even if you didn't want the fish there was no throwing it back it was already dead you just threw it out And Jesus uses fishermen doing this kind of dragnet fishing as his picture of what the end of the age will be like. Undesirable fish sent to their death at the end after a great harvest. That is, after this age has run its course, as you've heard me say already, Christ comes back. And when he does, those who are not his by faith will be caught, as it were, and condemned to Hades, or as we would say, hell. And of course, even before that moment, someone who dies without Christ finds themselves in that place already. Jesus ends the kingdom parables, these seven parables. He ends emphasizing this judgment, that this judgment awaits unbelievers. Why did He do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, it provides a contrast to what we just studied in the prior two parables on reward. That is, you have on the one hand believers, and what should we expect at the end of this age? We should expect our glory and our reward. What do unbelievers have to expect at the end of this age? Fierce judgment. And that is a reality. As we said earlier, and I think you heard me say it last week, there are two kinds of people in the world, only two. There are those who believe in Christ, and there are those who don't. And there are two very different outcomes for those two kinds of people. One kind of person, the believer, is set on a path of reward, and the other is on a path of destruction. One receives mercy, one receives punishment. Now, I hope nothing I've just said is news, but it is interesting in our day and age how few want to even agree that that's true, much less talk about it. The main reason Jesus ends His focus here on the fate of unbelievers, I believe, is not just that we understand that there are these two outcomes, but also that it might give us yet another reason to serve Him in the kingdom. Sometimes the thought of eternal reward, as true as it is, isn't really the thing that motivates us in serving Christ. Let me give you some examples. I, I tell you, I'll talk from my own experience as a Christian who understands these things, at least I think I do. When I think about eternal rewards it is a great motivator to me under certain circumstances for example whenever i'm doing service to the lord that i have trouble seeing as advancing the kingdom that is it's something that doesn't necessarily feel like kingdom work i'm going to give you examples like cleaning the toilet in the church that doesn't really feel like kingdom work you know or or stacking chairs Or printing bulletins or dropping a check on the offering box. You know, just sort of throwing money into a black hole. You don't know where it's going to go. You just know you're supposed to help the church, right? Or how about this? When you're struggling to raise godly children. Or when you're fighting to hold your marriage together. you know, those don't feel like kingdom work. They don't feel like serving Christ. But in those moments, you know you're doing the right things. You know you're doing what Christ would want you to do. Nevertheless you may not feel like it matters and as a result you might feel unappreciated you might feel like you're toiling away and you're not getting anywhere in it and then add to that you watch those believers who get to travel the world globe-trotting to foreign places and doing wonderful mission work and or building some big ministry, uh, ministry or saying you think oh I wish I could do kingdom work like that and by comparison you feel like maybe you aren't doing much that's appreciated and if that's how you felt the temptation is to either not do that work at all or to give up prematurely or to be discouraged about it. And I will say as an aside, I think every church body and certainly ours as well could do more to encourage others by telling them how much we appreciate the hard work they're doing even when they are sweeping a floor or doing that you know, menial labor as you might call it. Because friends, that's kingdom work. That is kingdom work. And I know you pat me on the back as Steve, you're, you're doing this I like or that. Thank you for your compliments but friends, I, I don't need them as much as a lot of other people do and I'm not saying that because I'm you know proud of myself. I'm saying that because I get more than my fair share. There are a lot of people in the building and in every church that go unappreciated. They need to hear from you too because that will encourage their service to Christ. But the thing I always remember in those moments when it's me toiling away, feeling unappreciated, I don't... I don't think about what other people are telling me. I think about what Christ is going to tell me, and I think about my reward. And I think that's where rewards fit in. They become that motivator in the moment when you're not finding any juice to the work you do on earth. When there's nobody patting on you the back, nobody telling you how good you are at what you're doing, no visible result for the kingdom, just remember Christ is watching, and he's going to reward you. He says this in Matthew six three. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Or later he says, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Remember that. The prospect of reward is a universal motivator. We use it in every aspect of our life, don't we? Don't we use it all the time to help people stick with the work that we ask them to do? Does not your employer reward you? Does not your teacher reward you? Do not parents reward their children? Do we think of those things as wrong or bad or in some sense counter to our desires? Aren't we all happy that rewards are possible? And then we turn around and we look at the Bible and the Bible says our Father's willing to reward us if we serve Him and then for some reason it seems wrong. We can do it, but He can't. It doesn't make any sense. Let it reward you, it su- or motivate you. It's supposed to. That's the whole point. It motivates us to deal with our sin. I'll tell you one of the ways it comes to my mind is, and not all the time, not enough, but sometimes, I'm sitting in, in looking at, A situation in my life where I could do the wrong thing. I could sin. I could make the bad choice. I've done it in the past. I'm thinking about it again. I'm ready to take that same path. And then I stop sometimes, and I think, I wonder what reward I might be sacrificing to have this reward instead. That is a good moment. That's where this doctrine comes to bear on my sanctification in the right way. And it causes me to think twice about trading an earthly uh, or a heavenly reward for some minimal, ridiculous, earthly gain. And if you want more proof of the fact that this is how it's supposed to work, let me quote Paul. Paul talks about the prospect of his own eternal reward, his heavenly reward, as his main motivator for pursuing sanctification. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9.24. He uses a metaphor of a race. Running a race is a metaphor for serving Christ. And what do you get at the end of a race? A race the end of a race, you win a prize. Let me just tell you that the Bible never uses the word prize in reference to your salvation. Never. Ever. A prize is something you earn, and you did not earn your salvation. The Bible calls your salvation a free gift. So if you've ever read the texts of Scripture that talk about winning a prize and thought that Paul was talking about salvation, let me help you with that right now. It never does. But look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And therefore I, speaking as Paul, he says, Therefore I run in such a way, not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Of my reward, he means. all right. So if Paul saw rewards as a main motivator for him to do the right thing, then who are we to do less than Paul? But there are going to be times, and I said this a moment ago, there are going to be times when that isn't quite going to work. There are circumstances in which the prospect of personal uh, heavenly reward is not going to be the right thing to motivate us into service. Because there are days when we come face to face with the heart of the kingdom program. And that is when serving Christ becomes very personal. And I'm not talking about cleaning toilets. I'm not talking about sweeping floors here. I'm talking about having concern for the eternal fate of an unsaved person and maybe a loved one Maybe a family member, maybe a friend. Perhaps you grow weary and you're losing hope because you've been praying for a wayward child for a long time. Or maybe you have a, hard, a hard-hearted spouse or friend. Perhaps you're worried, how do I talk to them about the gospel? I've done it so many times already and they aren't listening. Are they going to fight back? Are they going to be offended? Or will I lose that friend if I bring up the gospel? Now in those moments, I'll tell you from experience, the expectation of heavenly reward probably won't motivate you to do the right thing because in a sense, you care more about the moment and your pride or your embarrassment or the friction than you do about the prospect of eternal reward. Those are moments that are hard to put into that context. But I will tell you this, if you maintain a loving concern for that person's eternal fate, knowing that there is a judgment coming, that will stick. That will help. Because ultimately, friends, the kingdom program is not about obtaining gain, it's about preventing loss, the loss of souls. Christ wanted to motivate us, I think, by the eternal fate of the lost so that we would have another reason, and I would argue the main reason, to engage in the hard work of winning hearts so now you got two reasons motivating you to serve christ if you didn't need more than one you've got them anyway eternal rewards and the reality of a coming judgment and biblically speaking friends either of those are good reason to serve christ pick one or pick your own i've had people say well aren't we just supposed to serve christ because we love him if that's how life worked why don't your kids do that of course but it doesn't always work They love you. How come they don't obey you 100%? You see, I know that in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. But we're not talking theory. We're talking about how it actually works. And sinful people don't do what they should do, even though they love Christ. If you can serve Christ perfectly, based on His love for you alone, hallelujah, and I wish I was you. But what Jesus said is, I want to help you with that. How about this? I'll reward you. Oh, and by the way, there's a judgment coming. Maybe you ought to think about that. And maybe you take that together with your love for Christ and put it all together, and then you'll do the right thing. Most of the time. (laughs) You see how the problem is just never going to go away? But he's helping, he's trying, he loves you. He does not want you to sin. He doesn't want you to disobey him. And he's trying to give you reason to do differently. Now, the Apostle Paul is my example here one more time. He not only told us about run the race so as to win the prize, but he also told us that he was motivated for the sake of the lost He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And in chapter 6 he goes on, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time, and now is the day of salvation. Does that sound like a man who didn't care whether you accepted the gospel or not? You know, this is a guy who understood the sovereignty of God, and yet he urged people to receive Christ. Those are not incompatible. So Paul understood he had to work, and that there was a reward, and Paul understood there was a deadline, and salvation is today. And he worked for both reasons. Motivated by rewards. Motivated by saving souls. And I think Jesus understood we needed both those motivations. But for the very same reason, the enemy has been working really hard to blind Christians to these two truths because he knows if he's able to do that, we lose incentive to serve. Now, on the one hand, with rewards, I don't think it will surprise you if I tell you that many Christians don't know anything about the prospect of eternal rewards. I can't tell you how many times when I teach this topic, as it comes up here or elsewhere how many times i hear from a christian who says i have never heard anybody teach me about eternal rewards and that's not their fault they're just telling me what unfortunately is true in the church nobody's teaching the bible anymore do you realize that i give you the bible you just flip it open somewhere and i'll point my finger there and you know what i'll find on that page somewhere jesus and if it's the new testament almost always something about reward that's how common it is in the bible it's all over the place why because it's a main motivator for us to do the right thing. And you have the problem today of a lot of churches that are teaching about earthly rewards, the prosperity gospel, which muddies the waters terribly, right? Now they're not sure what you're talking about when you talk about rewards, and you've got to work doubly hard to clarify you're not talking prosperity stuff, you're talking about eternal stuff. Well, that's a tactic of the enemy, right? Muddy the waters. Hebrews 11.6, you all know this verse, most of you but you have not heard it properly, I bet. Listen to this. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. You all know that half, right? Have you ever read the second half? For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Rewards are never salvation. You understand that's not talking about salvation. What's in Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. All of these Old Testament saints that we look up to because their lives are such great testimonies of faith, right? But if you go look at that chapter, what is the refrain over and over and over again? The writer says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Yes, you must come to Him in faith or otherwise nothing matters. But then he goes on to say, that faith must also recognize God as a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now, is he saying you have to know that to be saved? No. What did he say? In verse 6, he said this. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? Please him. The issue in chapter 11, verse 6, is how you please God. And what the writer says is, you've got to have faith first. That's a prerequisite. Unbelievers don't please him. But then you also have to understand he rewards you. Otherwise, you won't try to please him. If you don't understand that he's looking at you, judging what you do, preparing a reward for you, you won't try to please him. You'll just live your life till you die, and then you expect to be in heaven, and you don't really think about the details. How many Christians do you know that kind of fit that pattern? Don't raise your hand. Especially if it's about your spouse. So the writer said this, Our reward is a part of how we understand to please Christ. That's been in that verse the whole time, and you probably... Didn't see that. At least I didn't for a long time. And if you look at the chapter that's after that verse, what you find is person after person after person in that chapter whose life is an example of how they made sacrifices in the earthly realm, giving up opportunity. Moses did not want to be counted among the rich in the Pharaoh's family, right? And Abraham turned away from his family. Sarah did this, and Isaac did this. And why are they all doing it? Because they want a heavenly country, a heavenly reward. What they know is waiting for them in the next life matters more than what they can get in this life. So serving Christ well in the kingdom program depends, at least in part, on having a biblical appreciation that God is a rewarder, which then turns in your heart into motivation to please Him for that reward. And the enemy has been working really hard to make believers completely ignorant of that fact. And have you also noticed how hard he's been working lately to undermine the Bible's teaching on hell and judgment? There are so-called Christian pastors writing books declaring that hell isn't a literal place and that God never sends anybody there, despite the plain teaching contrary to that in the Bible. The enemy is raising up liars like that specifically to diminish our motivation to seek for the lost. Because frankly, friends, if there's no hell, there's no reason to worry who's Christian and who isn't. Right? It completely removes the cause of the church. The moment you stop caring about the fate of the lost is the moment that the kingdom program becomes little more than a vanity project. At that point, if there's no hell, the church's mission is pointless and all we're really doing is building monuments to ourselves and, and pretty buildings and you know nice potlucks and rock climbing walls and coffee bars and and we feel really good about it what was the point in any of that if the point is not ultimately to add another citizen to the kingdom then it has no point jesus said that at the end of the age the kingdom program will ultimately be about collecting fish as it were into containers finding out who is his and who are not his and we serve Him knowing, yes, we will be rewarded, but we also serve Him knowing that the point in all of this is to recruit citizens for the kingdom. That is the kingdom program in a nutshell. That's what seven parables just taught us collectively. It's church. It's the mission of the church. It's your calling as a Christian. Every believer in Jesus Christ should know these things, not just because it's interesting and you want to be able to tell someone. It's, it's going to change how you live your life. It should change how you live your life, right? Right? Again, don't become a monk. Don't go live on the top of a mountain. This is not about showing your, how pious you can be. We're just saying, in the quiet moments of your life, when the choice is sin or serve, think about your reward. Think about the lost. This is such an important teaching that Jesus actually asked the disciples, do you understand what I just said? Look at verse 51. He said, have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. So, because we got to deal with that, right? So Jesus just asked the twelve, do you understand these seven parables I just taught you? All right. Now, there are two possible ways to hear their answer. You could take their statement at face value. I mean, we might as well at least acknowledge the possibility, right? They totally understood everything that Jesus just said. But now, if that were true, that would be remarkable because it would probably be the only time they ever understood anything that Jesus said. Time and time again, these guys are famous for missing the mark. Do you remember the scene right before Jesus goes to raise Lazarus in John's Gospel, John 11? And Jesus knows Lazarus is going to die, and he's waiting. Remember, he waits a few days to make sure he's good and dead, and then he goes to raise him. And there's this funny, funny moment at the very beginning. John eleven eleven. Jesus said to the disciples, He said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. And the disciples then said to him, Well, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll wake up. Now, this is my interpretation, at which point Jesus went, you know, he just face-planted right there in front of him. Now, remember, John was one of these guys who, who said that, but then now, in retrospect, John looks very smart. He says, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. And then verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I love that. I can just see the whole thing playing out. We must go awaken our friend Lazarus. Well, he'll wake up. He's dead. Where was I? All right, so given how often these guys did not catch the clue on what Jesus was doing, I read this a second way. I find it hard to believe that they understood what was going on. So why did they say yes? I think they just said that without thinking, probably because they were either too afraid or too embarrassed to admit, no, Jesus, we don't have a clue what you just said. And... That's why he gives them the eighth parable that now we finish with. This eighth parable is not one of the kingdom parables, um, but it's ironically, it's a parable about his disciples understanding the program. So verse 52, Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. All right, let's, let's understand this one. So this parable, again, is not part of the seven. And you can see that because most of the other seven always began with uh, a phrase like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Notice this one doesn't do that. This one says, this is a parable about a scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. So it's not about the nature of the kingdom now. The topic now is the nature of a certain disciple, one that he calls a scribe. Now, in Jesus' day, a scribe was the name given to someone who, st- who studied and taught the Torah or the prophets, the Word of God. And so today, what would be the closest equivalent to a scribe? Well, a scribe today would be a pastor, a Bible teacher, seminary professor. Those are scribes in the sense of what Jesus meant. And why didn't he just say pastor or teacher? Well, because those terms aren't necessarily Old Testament terms. He used the terminology of the day, but we know what it means. So he's talking here in this parable about those in the church who lead others principally through the teaching of God's Word. And Jesus compares those disciples to a head of a household. Now, the phrase head of household is one word in Greek, and that same Greek word was used earlier in the parable of the wheat and the tares, and that's where it was translated landowner. Remember the landowner was the one that was looking at the field? Well, that's the same Greek word. Head of household. Landowner. Same thing. So in Christ's day, a landowner or a head of household was a man who had tremendous authority, tremendous responsibility in his home. He was responsible for the servants. You saw that in the earlier parable. He was responsible for the crops in the field. We saw that earlier too. And he's ultimately responsible for making sure that those crops produce a good harvest because that's the source of his wealth in his home. It's his business, right? And so what Jesus says is, that landowner's responsibilities should be compared To a disciple who leads the church through teaching during the kingdom program. And, I mean, it's easy, it's it's important to say up front, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the ultimate leader of the church. He rules over the church. That's not in question. But it's also true that he raises up men and women in the church who then take on a, a kind of under shepherd role, we would say. And that group of leaders, whoever they are, are supposed to guide and feed the sheep. Right? Remember, Jesus said to Peter, if you love me, Feed my sheep, right? The test of love, if you will, for a person in leadership is, do they feed people the Word of God? That's what Jesus said. And a landowner running a household has responsibilities that are similar to those of someone watching over the flock or the house of God. And he says he wants his disciples to lead as scribes, which is to say, who teach the Word of God to the church and operate in that way like a head of a household. So in other words... We care for servants of God. We provide them the, the things they need spiritually. We watch over the field. Uh, we make sure that these plants that the Lord has planted in the field grow strong and produce fruit. It's the same idea of what you saw in that earlier parable. We're not responsible for the planting. We're responsible for ensuring a good crop of fruit, of seed. All right? So what that means, practically speaking, is pastors... Teachers, ministry leaders, small group leaders, everyone who plays a part in guiding or feeding the sheep at some level in this body, share in this responsibility. Leaders are called by Christ to help others produce fruit. That's the goal. It's, It's not about having a bunch of people under you that makes you feel important and you get to call yourself a leader and you have a title and a name badge and all the rest. It's about seeing how effective you can be at helping other people be godly. That's the goal of someone who leads. And when a leader does their part and teaches, then the wheat will produce fruit. That's the intent. The writer of Hebrews says this. I guess it's Hebrews day and here today. But Hebrews thirteen seventeen. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, and let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. What the writer of Hebrews just said is, there's a win-win proposition for us in this arrangement. On the one hand, to the members of the flock, he says, don't make it hard for your leaders to lead you. All right? And I can echo that. Please don't make it hard. Right? Who wants it to be hard, right? And the writer says, if you make it hard for those who are around you to lead you in the body through the teaching of the Word, it's unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable. That is, you might win some argument, you might get your own way on some small matter, but what are you sacrificing in your spiritual development as a result of that? As you grow because of that person's influence in teaching, whoever they are, you grow to please Christ more. And as you please Christ more, you get more reward. In the kingdom, you'll be happy you were listening. That's the idea. But it works the other way too because as ministry leaders, you notice the writer says that we are accountable for souls. You know, if there's anything that keeps me up at night, that's what keeps me up at night. As more people show up in here that I don't know, I don't think I know half of you at this point, not well, and I'm accountable to you. That's that's kind of freaking me out because... What will that mean? I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you need. I'm trying. But that's a challenge, right? That's why you need lots of people doing the leadership of the ministry. And the pastor, the teacher, whomever, has to put the needs of others before their own, self-sacrificially, giving of their time, giving of their knowledge, giving of their, their encouragement, prayer, whatever they have to offer, so that they're investing in the other person, so they make a good account for that person. As we do that, we get rewarded. That's how our reward comes for our sacrifice to the needs of the body. You're rewarded for obeying your leaders. We're rewarded for leading you into the spiritual walk Christ has for you. It's a win-win when we're all doing our job. Now, I'm assuming here, of course, that teachers are teaching properly. Leaders are doing so biblically. Obviously, if somebody's not doing their job well, that changes the whole equation. But the general understanding is we obey leadership Who teaches us, and leaders are to teach so that we can grow. And then the final thing he says in this parable, the key thing, he said, A scribe must be prepared to bring things out of his treasure, both old and new. Now, in the parable, going back to the parable for a second, a landowner's treasure would have been the wealth that he accumulated in the work of his business. And he would have had a good deal of wealth in his hands, under his control, under his authority, and he would have used that wealth to provide for the needs of those who were in his home. And he would have had old things and new things. The old things in a landowner's treasure would have been things like family heirlooms, stuff that would have been passed down over generations, the kind of thing we all have to some degree, right? Things we treasure. And then the new wealth would have simply been what he's earning continuously. Last year's profits from selling his field, the the money of the household that's coming in all the time. And as he provided for those under his care, he would bring those treasures out one or the other at different times. To a son, he might bring out something old as something to pass down to him. For a servant in his field, he might give him a day's wage from from the new treasure, so to speak. It's just a way of saying that everything you have is at the disposal of those who need you who are under your care, and you will use what you have to serve those who depend on you. Old, new. Jesus says, those who serve as scribes in the kingdom, teaching the people of God, must be prepared to bring out treasure that is both old and new. All right, now, we know what the treasure is of the landowner. What's the treasure of a scribe? What's the treasure of a Bible teacher? Isn't it obvious? Isn't it the Word of God itself, the knowledge of it, the revelation of it, the revealing of the truths of it? That's the treasure. Let me tell you what, the treasure that's in this book is far more valuable than anything you've got in your safe at home. That's treasure. And I'm supposed to give you both old and new. Now old, in this context, in the context of a kingdom parables chapter, the context then tells us that old refers to kingdom truths that were revealed in the Old Testament. By the prophets, in the law, in times before Jesus. And in those places of the Bible, do you know what we find about the kingdom in the Old Testament? A literal kingdom, literal place, physically on the earth, with a God in the form of Christ, ruling from the seed of David in the city of Jerusalem, over the whole of the world. Israel in its land. Gentile nations spread around the globe. A thousand years, we find out in Revelation, of that physical, earthly kingdom that's what the old testament teaches do you know what the old testament never says a word about not directly the church the church was a mystery that's why the disciples are struggling to understand the program it was new and that's the new side of the teaching that when you're talking about the kingdom program you're bringing something out new from god's word when you're talking about the way the kingdom has been prophesied from times past that's the old and jesus said i'm supposed to bring you both you know what he just said it's not one or the other One didn't replace the other. It's both. For a time, now it's the new. But you also need to know about the old, that is, about the physical kingdom that's coming, because that's your future. That's one day where we're all going to be. And I don't favor one over the other. You know, it's become fashionable over the last few centuries, I think, certainly the last few decades, for the church to go one of two ways. It's only about the new, or it's only about the old. If it's only about the new, these are churches where you never hear them teach out of the Old Testament. It's all New Testament all the time. As if the Old Testament doesn't even exist. And as a result, there's not a lot of teaching about the literal physical kingdom. And there's other churches for whom they believe this is the kingdom. It's replaced the promises given to Israel. We now live in it. They literally would tell you that the world you see right now is the fulfillment of the literal kingdom. God, I hope they're wrong. I know they're wrong. I mean, if this is as good as the kingdom gets, right? Oh my gosh. Talk about a talk about a bait and switch so jesus said we help move hearts into obedience by understanding what the kingdom's really about both the old testament view that says it's going to be literal one day and the new testament understanding which says for at least a time it must also exist as a program of recruitment i need you to understand both and you can see why right to understand that it's a program of recruitment tells you what your mission is To understand that it is soon to be a literal place tells you what you're working for. And you need both at all times in your understanding. And if I'm to do my job in leading you into godliness, I need to represent the word in that way fully so that you're prepared to do what God's called you to do. Let me end with one more scripture from Ephesians. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature person to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's my job statement. That's my my job description right there. And yours too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to keep in mind the things we've learned today as we serve you in the kingdom program every day. Help us to remember, Father, that we have a reward waiting as we serve you. Let it be more motivation to us than our desires on earth. And help us, Father, remember that a judgment comes one day. And the men and women we come into contact with every day are men and women who may be in your economy, the future resident of the kingdom, and that we are called to bring them the news of the gospel so they might receive it don't let us forget them father help us to have an attitude that recognizes this is about them that ultimately the measure of our success will be how we served you for that for their sake and we ask father that you would remind us of that not just today but every day and let us live it out every day thank you for this church what you've done to build it what you are doing to build it so that it may be available to proclaim these truths to those who've never heard them